Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in section 46, 47, and 48. And in section 46, the question arises, how do we conduct church meetings and how do we make the church alive and vibrant and growing and give us some direction, Lord? And they've got a whole lot, you know, as they bring in converts from all over, from different backgrounds, a lot of these people are, you know, like falling on the ground and shaking, and they're claiming that this is how God is speaking to them. So Joseph is saying, okay, what does spirit look like? How do, how do we have these meetings? What are these sacrament meetings? And for the first time that I can recollect, the Lord's going to actually use the phrase sacrament meeting. How do we have these sacrament meetings? How do we conduct them? So the question on the table is, how does the Spirit manifest itself to us and through our meetings? And that's going to allow the Lord to open up a door and teach a doctrine that I want to shout from the rooftops today. So yes, there's a little bit here in 46 about conducting meetings. So the first seven or so verses are about get the Spirit, conduct your meetings with the Spirit, and by the way, don't kick anyone else out. That really strikes me as intriguing. Jesus said the same thing in Third Nephi. He seems to emphasize that. Don't kick anyone out. Don't kick strangers out. Don't kick members out. Now, if they're unworthy, you know, withhold the sacrament from them, but don't kick them out of your sacrament meeting, and I think that's very significant we should apply that broadly. Don't kick people out of your life. Don't kick people out of your family. Don't kick people out of your circle of influence. Bryce, I know you and I have talked about this before, about the Old Testament, how the Lord's covenant people are right there in the middle of all these empires. And the road, if Egypt wanted to go fight Babylon, they had to go through Judea. There's a reason the Lord put them right there in the middle. He He wanted them to influence the world. Yeah, and I think that's the same thing when you say, don't cast them out. We live amidst this ocean of all these different ideas, and the Lord, I like how he calls us salt. There's just a little bit of salt on the meal, but it makes the meal so wonderful, and I like that idea that we, if the Lord wanted us to be monks, he would have restored the gospel on an island somewhere. Yeah, right? he, he put us in Australia and sharks in the water. Right. In other words, we need to interact with people. So, beautiful beginning, how do we conduct meetings, have the Spirit, don't kick anyone out. But By the way, one more thing, Bryce, number seven, I think is what you're talking about. Don't be seduced. Yeah. Because people had weird views yeah. or strange views about what it meant to have the Spirit, right? right? Yeah. And coming out of the apostasy, you can understand that we have a whole wide range of what people believe God looks like. What does a manifestation from the Holy Ghost look like? So now the door, the Lord opens the door on a wonderful doctrine— And that is not just how does the Spirit manifest himself in our meetings, but one way the Spirit manifests himself in the church, in the kingdom and on earth. And let me introduce this. Those of you who've read C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know that while they're journeying to see Aslan the lion, on their journey, Father Christmas shows up and gives each one of them a gift. Peter gets a sword, Susan gets a bow, and Lucy gets a tonic. And those gifts are essential pieces of their journey. Now, when Peter's sword is needed, 
Susan's bow won't suffice and Lucy's tonic won't suffice. There is going to be a meeting, a moment in this journey where, Peter, you're going to need this sword, so I'm going to give it to you. And Lucy, there's going to be a part of this journey where you need this tonic. So here, let me give you this tonic. Now, picture that. Go back to pre-mortal life, Heavenly Father, sending us to earth, knowing the journey ahead of us, and he's going to say, you guys are going to need some help. So let me bury the help you're going to need within each one of you. I'm going to give my children the tools that all of you need to succeed. Now, Peter, you've got the sword. Lucy, you've got the tonic. Peter, you don't get sword, bow, and tonic. You get sword. And you've got to make sure that Lucy is nearby when you need the tonic. So can you just picture Heavenly Father saying, the only way you succeed on earth is if you have the tools that I'm going to give you. You need to be able to laugh. There will be moments when you need to laugh. And so I'm going to give some of you a unique ability to laugh. And some of you are going to have extra endowments of faith. And some of you will be super smart. And some of you will be super wise. And some of you will be patient. And some of you will know how to pray really, really well. And some of you will understand the scriptures better than others. I'm scattering the gifts that you need to get back to my presence among you. Now, learn how to use those in this journey. That is the doctrine that Heavenly Father is trying to teach today. And we call them the gifts of the Spirit. And that we need to understand that they are tools that God gave us so that all of us collectively can get back to His presence. And they are scattered among us. So section 46 begins to list some of the rules for using these. Now, we saw this in New Testament. Back when Mike and I did 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, we talked about gifts of the Spirit, because that's where Paul talks about them. In the Book of Mormon, when we did Moroni 10, we talked about gifts of the Spirit, because that's where Moroni talks about them. But in both of those cases, we referred to section 46. So here we are in 46. We're going to redo it. This is the time to just really have the discussion about the gifts of the Spirit, so that not only can you get through a meeting, but you can get through mortality and know how I'm guiding my children through mortality. You know, before you get into it, Bryce, I just got to say, the whole time you were talking about that book, I was thinking Tolkien's doing the same stuff with these gifts, and then I'm going to nerd out, Lucas is doing the same stuff in Star Wars. (laughs) How many times is R2 know what to do to fix the hyperdrive or to get it through this gate or door. And, you know, Luke's got his lightsaber and, you know, Leia, she's a character in hand. He can kind of con his way out of anything. And I think about that in a family. And the joke in my family is if we need something fixed, if you ask dad to fix it, it's going to get worse. In other words, everybody has their skill. And sometimes our tendency is to beat ourselves up when I see your cool skill. Right, and we're going to talk about that. I think that's so good. But anyway, I'm just the whole time you were talking, my mind was going all these places. I thought that was such a cool analogy. You begin to see that, that Heavenly Father has impressed that idea on all of us and that filmmakers make films that kind of indicate that same idea, that the tools of our success are scattered among us. And that's why we need each other. So I like lists. Everyone who listens to our podcast knows that Bryce likes lists. So I'm going to give you a list, kind of the rules that govern the gifts of the Spirit. 
just things that the Lord has said. Um, we'll have this whole list in the show notes if you want to go back and see the master list. But right off the bat, the Lord gives us the first one in verse 8. He says, Seek ye earnestly the best gifts. In Corinthians, he'll say, Be zealous, covet gifts. Now, normally we don't covet. But Heavenly Father's saying it is okay to want gifts from the Spirit. And I think there are moments in our lives where we really ought to covet and seek a particular gift that's needed. Missionaries that get called to speak a foreign language certainly should seek the gift of tongues. Bishops desperately need the gift of the differences of administration. Parents often need the gift of wisdom and discernment. And the Lord's saying, seek them want them, pray for them. It's okay. This is one thing in which it's okay to wish and covet righteously and go out and seek a gift of the Spirit. If you are called to teach, asking the Lord for the gift of teaching is a divine thing. So there's number one. I also think seeking is working at it. That's right. Sometimes you'll see somebody so talented and what you don't see is all the reps they're putting in. That's right. So I think so, to me, seeking is, man, you, you're grinding. You're, you're really working at this stuff. So I think that's important. Okay. So now the next one, number two on our list, and watch how many times he's going to repeat this in section 46. You have to remember why I give them. It is absolutely crucial that you have it in your mind why the Lord gives gifts. So let me just point out all the times he answers that. Verse 8 always remembering for what they are given. And then he's going to answer that in verse 9. They are given for the benefit of those who love me and keep my commandments and those who are seeking to do. That all may be benefited. End of verse 10. That are given unto the church. Why? End of verse 12. That all may be profited thereby. 17, he talks about the word of wisdom and the gift of knowledge in 18. Now, why would he give someone the gift of wisdom and someone else the gift of knowledge? Look at the very end of 18. This applies to all spiritual gifts. That all may be taught to be wise and to have knowledge. Do you see that idea? For everybody. End of verse 26, for the benefit of the children of God. Let me just read verse 26. All these gifts come from God for the benefit of the children of God. In other words, your gift, now we're going to talk about that you have a gift. Everyone listening to this podcast has a unique gift. Your gift was not given to you. It was given to the church through you. Do you see how the Lord is implying in giving you a gift that you have a duty to bless everyone else with it? It's not. Now go back to the end of verse 9. What are we not to do with our gifts? Here's the opposite. If I recognize that my gift has been given to me so that I can bless everyone the one thing I must not do with my gift, look at the very end of verse 9, I must not consume it upon my lust. If I use my gift for my gratification and my gain and my applause and to draw attention to me, 
I offend and anger the God who gave me that gift. He gave me that gift to bless other people's lives. In your analogy, we're trying to get our group home. That's right. They got to get to Aslan. Whether it's we're trying to get out of the Death Star, if we're if you've read The Hobbit or if you've read Lord of the Rings, we're trying to get back to the Shire, and it kind of represents this garden home of peace, and everybody plays their role. So everybody gets something. It's just To me, it's just beautiful. Now, one time Joseph Smith misused his gift, and he was severely rebuked for it. And we all need to hear this because there is a real temptation to misuse our gifts for our own gain. So back in section three, when Joseph lost the manuscript that he had a gift to produce, the Lord says the following. This is Doctrine and Covenant section three, verse four. For although a man may have many revelations, that's a gift, and have power to do many mighty works, that's a gift, yet... If he boasts in his own strength and sets at naught the counsels of God and follows after the dictate of his own will and carnal desires, he must fall. Not that he will fall. He must fall and incur the vengeance of a just God upon them. So be careful. I know there are people who make a living using the gift that God has given them. But even those people need to be careful in understanding that my gift is not to bring me glory. It's to bring every one of Heavenly Father's children glory. And I see the the tension. You work really hard. You put in the time. You seek it. You cultivate this gift, and you get really good at it, and it can really benefit you financially. And I think one of the warnings the Lord is giving to the saints and to me and to all of us is, remember who is the giver of the gift. Just remember who you are. Okay, now back to section 46, verse 11. For all have not every gift given unto them, for there are many gifts. Now, let me be clear. If you look at section 46, 13 through 25, you're going to get a list of not quite a dozen gifts. But please understand that there are not just a dozen or so gifts. There are millions of gifts, many gifts. What you have in section 46 and in 1 Corinthians and in Moroni are simply a sampling of things that you can think of. Um, Years ago, Elder Ashton, Marvin J. Ashton, basically went through just 3 Nephi. He went through 3 Nephi and identified what he felt were gifts of the Spirit manifested in 3 Nephi. And he gave this this absolutely beautiful list of gifts. So don't limit your thinking, what is your gift, to the list that's in section 46. Um, So let me just briefly read Elder Ashton's list, just just to kind of get the idea of how many gifts there are. Actually, before I do that, can I throw in this from Bruce R. McConkie? In his New Witness for the Articles of Faith, Elder McConkie wrote, spiritual gifts are endless in number and infinite in variety. Those listed in the revealed word are simply illustrations of the boundless outpouring of divine grace that a gracious God gives those who love and serve him. So what we have in the scriptures is just a very, very small sampling. So here is Elder Ashton's list that he compiled simply by reading 3 Nephi, identifying the gifts of the Spirit he found in 3 Nephi. Here's his list. 
let us review some of the less conspicuous gifts. The gift of asking, the gift of listening, the gift of hearing and using a still small voice, the gift of being able to weep, the gift of avoiding contention, the gift of being agreeable, the gift of avoiding vain repetition, the gift of seeking that which is righteous, the gift of not passing judgment, the gift of looking to God for guidance, the gift of being a disciple, the gift of caring for others, the gift of being able to ponder, the gift of offering prayer, the gift of bearing a mighty testimony, and the gift of receiving the Holy Ghost. As I read that list, what I'm hoping is that you'll begin to recognize your gift. What is it that God has given you? If you're Lucy, do you identify the tonic that you've been given? If you're Peter, do you know that you have a sword? Do you know what gift you have? Because there's so many of them. I know I've mentioned this in a previous podcast, but my incredible wife has the gift of healing through listening. People just come to her and they just start talking to her. And before you know it, they've poured out their soul and they feel better. She heals in a marvelous way by listening to them. Uh, My father had the incredible gift of calm in the storm. My sister's reception was outside in our backyard. And then suddenly that day it rained. And everyone was frantic. And I'll never forget watching how calm my father was in the storm. I think that's an incredible gift, calm in the storm. President Hinckley certainly had the gift of optimism, the gift of humor. President Hinckley always saw the possibilities. I think if you begin to realize there are so many gifts and see them, recognize them, start noticing them in other people, the gift of patience, the gift of understanding, the gift of compassion, the gift to be able to respect and see the value in other people, the gift of problem solving. There are so many of them. What is your gift? They're so varied and there's so many of them you need to find one. Now back to section 46, verse 11, ready? And this is where I shout from the rooftops. To every man is given a gift by the Spirit of God. And clearly the use of the word man here is the generic to every person. Every one of Heavenly Father's children has been given a gift. You have a gift. Maybe you have many, but you have at least one gift. Now, the next thing I think we need to point out, go back to section eight. Let me throw in a couple verses, one to Oliver Cowdery, one to Hiram Smith. Listen to what the Lord says to Oliver in verse four. Therefore, this is thy gift, apply unto it. This is thy gift, apply unto it. Meaning gifts have to be developed. They need to be pushed and grown. You need to push that gift and and, and apply unto that gift and develop that gift. Go to section 11. Notice what the Lord says to Hiram Smith regarding his gift. Section 11, verse 10, behold, thou hast a gift or thou shalt have a gift if you want it. 
Let me read that again. Thou shalt have a gift if thou wilt desire of me in faith. You have to want to develop it. You have to grow it. You have to walk the pavement and flex your muscles. You don't just sit back and all of a sudden have this magnificent ability. It's something you need to apply unto. If you have a hint in your patriarchal blessing, or if there's this ability that you just naturally have that is a blessing to the kingdom, don't just sit back and wait for the Lord to develop it. You develop it. If my wife has the gift of healing by listening, then she needs to continually put herself in a position to listen to other people. And as she does that, she will develop the ability to know who needs to be healed by talking and working it out and sharing their burden with her. Apply unto your gift. Practice it. Move it. Make it available. Offer it to the the Lord and to the church. Now, I, th- I do think we need to jump back to 1 Corinthians just for a minute. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18, I think there's an important clarification, and it comes to the point Mike was making earlier, that sometimes we look at other people and we get a little jealous. We're a little envious of the gift that God gave them. Some gifts are more obvious to see than other gifts. But notice what Paul says So he's trying to make this whole idea that all the members of that one body are many and yet one body. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, If the whole body were an eye, where's the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where's the smelling? Verse 21, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of thee. In other words, every gift is needed. And verse 18, now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. I need to read that again. I need this to register in your head. Now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. You have the gift God wants you to have. And that other person has the gift that God wants them to have. And there is greater wisdom in why each one of you have the gift you have than I think we realize. Lucy didn't get the sword. Susan didn't get the tonic. Peter got the sword because it was the right gift to give Peter, and the tonic was the right gift to give Lucy, and the gift you have is the right gift for you. It's the one Heavenly Father chose. And if yours is a little bit more quiet, if yours is a perhaps an unnoticed gift, it doesn't mean you can't contribute to the kingdom any less than those who have more flamboyant and obvious gifts. Back to our analogy and our illustration, some of the coolest gifts in Star Wars are held by R2. Like, they would die if it weren't for him, and they just look over droids. And Tolkien does the same thing, where these little hobbits are going to undermine the entire world of darkness. They're going to do this great work, and there's a couple lines in there where they're referred to as likened to children. And I think because we're all God's children— I think sometimes great things are in small packages that we just look past. Like 
Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Only everything. A carpenter who's coming out of this podunk part of the empire, working with fishermen. And who are these guys, right? They're nothing. And yet their writings, their words, their testimonies change the world. And so I just think that's really beautiful. Yep. Sauron would never expect a halfling to take the ring and destroy it. And I think there's something in that, that God knows who needs each gift. We have the gifts that we're supposed to have, and they're all needed. Every one of them are needed. Okay, the next one is kind of a fun idea, and I'm so glad that the Lord threw this in here, but it intrigues me to study. If you look at verse 29, that unto some it may be given to have all those gifts, that there may be a head. Now, again, I don't know how to read this. Maybe those gifts are the ones listed in section 46, that someone has all of the ones in section 46. I certainly think you could read it that way. But I wonder if we could read it another way, and that is that someone could, as needed, manifest every single gift that God gave to his children. Now, who would that someone be? There's a beautiful verse here in section 107, verses 91 and 92. So, who might be the person who has all of the gifts? Let me start in 91. And again, the duty of the president of the office of the high priesthood is to preside over the whole church and be like unto Moses. Behold, here is wisdom, yea, to be a seer, a revelator, a translator, a prophet, having all the gifts of God which he bestows upon the head of the church. Now, again, does he have every single gift or does he have all? What does it mean by having all the gifts which he bestows upon the head of the church? I don't know. You interpret those verses how you think, but I just wonder if the Lord is trying to wave the arm and say, look, the president of this church could manifest any gift that was needed at the time. Whatever gift, he has all of the gifts that the Lord bestows upon the head of the church. That's kind of a fun thought. It is. I Typologically, I really like the idea of the president or the high office of the high priesthood of the church could also represent, of course, the Savior. A very simple way to look at this. Of course, Jesus has all the gifts. But typologically, in the Old Testament, Moses is going to be the embodiment of these things. I think historically, we look at Joseph and we see so many gifts that he has, but we also see his shortcomings. I mean, the Lord's very frank with Joseph and says, you're not going to be the best at money, but your role is to be a seer. And I think that's kind of the space I'm in where I'm like, Prophets are these great people and they channel revelation, but they're also human beings. Especially I take that approach as I read the Old Testament. But I really like what Bryce is saying in verse 91 and 92, because the Lord could use that individual to do whatever he needs to have done, whatever is needed. It's beautiful stuff. And I do like the idea that Bryce is really emphasizing that these gifts are for the church because we're to help each other. We're a family. So, you know, back to the president of the church, I've heard some criticism. President Hinckley was very media savvy. He was very good with reporters and answered a lot of their questions. And President Monson didn't really do that. And it just wasn't his personality. But I would maintain, though, 
that President Monson, had he felt the need, could very easily have manifested the gift that President Hinckley had. I just love that idea that the president of the church has all of the gifts, whatever he needs, and he feels like he needs, he would have access to. Kind of a tribute to the man who holds the keys here on earth. Now, we talked about when you misuse your gift, it could be taken away. I remind you of section three where the Lord says, if you're going to misuse a gift, be careful, you must fall. And then there's this intriguing verse in section 60 of the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord says, but with some I am not well pleased, for they will not open their mouths, but they hide the talent which I have given unto them because of the fear of man. Now, I think that talent in some way is reference to the gift that you've been given. You hide the gift that you've been given out of fear of men. Woe unto such, for mine anger is kindled against them, and it shall come to pass that if they are not more faithful unto me, it shall be taken away even that which they have. We can lose a gift. If we use it selfishly on ourselves, we must fall and incur the vengeance of a just God. But if we're unwilling to bless the world with our gift, then why should we even have it? And so don't be afraid to manifest your gift and bless other people's lives. Don't get prideful because of it and think you're better, but don't be afraid to offer help because you can do something well. Offer your assistance. I think that's another reason why we don't have a professional clergy. I've had conversations with people where they say, oh, I wish that we had a professional up there every Sunday giving us a really polished speech and that that is edifying. We could go home edified by this person that's very well spoken. You know, we've all been to church meetings where the meeting maybe wasn't as polished as we would like, or maybe the message didn't meet our needs. And sometimes I think, I think the Lord's more interested in what's happening in the hearts and minds of the flock. And by them coming up to the pulpit and by them speaking, the Lord's stretching us, and we can kind of be patient with people, and it's a little bit messier. I remember on my mission, sometimes I'm sure you had this price where you would bring an investigator to church and you would be like, oh, I hope this is going to be okay, because you never know what's going to happen. And that messiness, the Lord must be okay with it, because it was happening early in the church. My take on it really comes out of verse 7 and 8. If you really look at verse 7 and 8, and you kind of do some of this church history stuff, and people did, they would go to church and they'd be shaking, and they thought that was the Holy Ghost. And so the Lord has to sort all this out and talk about, you know, if it doesn't edify, is it the Holy Ghost? And Joseph's very patient teaching these ideas. But even today in 2021, we've had 200 years of the church being restored. I love the message that the church is still being restored. The restoration is ongoing. And part of that is us. Like, we have to get better. And so we're all on this journey together, and so we've got to work on it. And as we do, the church meetings may be a little bit not perfect and not polished, but it's good. It is. And it gives everyone an opportunity to bring what they have. Now, let's add one more to the list of the rules that kind of govern the gifts of the Spirit, and that is that one gift is most important. All gifts are great, and all gifts are needed, and your gift is needed at a right moment. But if we're going to aspire for a gift, there is one gift 
that is more important than any other gift. So for this, we turn back to Paul. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is where he talks a whole lot about the gifts of the Spirit, and that's where we read about the we're all a body but different parts of the body, and now we turn to chapter 13. And Paul says, though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, that's a gift, and it's a very prominent gift, right? We all notice the Jeffrey R. Hollands of the church. We notice the people who can speak with the tongue of angels. That's a tremendous gift, and it's often one that we admire and aspire to. But notice what Paul says, though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy, there's a wonderful gift. And understand all mysteries, that's another wonderful gift. And all knowledge, again, another gift. And though I have all faith, another gift, so that I could remove mountains. So if I have all these gifts, prophecies and mysteries and knowledge and faith, and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, that's a tremendous gift. And I love the humanitarians out there who have the gift and compassion to take care of people in need. Though I bestow all all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. And then the very last verse of chapter 13, I now abideth faith, hope, and charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. Charity is a gift. Some people naturally have it. I believe Spencer W. Kimball, if you lived during the presidency of Spencer W. Kimball and you remember that man, he had the gift of charity. Love came so easily to him. Charity came so easily to Spencer W. Kimball. And many of you know people who have naturally the gift of charity. But I think what Paul is saying is this is the gift we should all seek. And we need to all develop charity. Now, how do you do that? For that, we turn to the Book of Mormon. In Moroni chapter 7, speaking of faith, hope, and charity, Mormon writes to his son Moroni, and he defines charity. Starting in about 45, 44, he starts talking about charity. Verse 45, he defines charity. Charity suffereth long, is kind, envieth not. Verse 47, charity is the pure love of Christ. Now, the key to unlock this whole thing is in verse 48. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that you may be filled with this love. Ask for charity. Seek and covet and be zealous for the gift of charity. Plead with God with all the energy of your heart to have the gift of charity, which he bestows upon all who are true followers of his son, Jesus Christ. So ask for it and follow Jesus. The more you follow Jesus, you will naturally develop the gift of charity. But one of the ways we show the Lord we really want it is by following Jesus. You have the threefold attributes that I kind of associate with the temple. You've got faith and then hope. And then right before you enter the veil, you get this charity. 
And it's the second sight where you can see as God sees and ritually in the temple, anciently, you're like the brother of Jared, you're seeing God and he's seeing you and you're seeing as he sees and you have this charity. And I love that verse in the Doctrine and Covenants where those that are celestial see as they are seen and know as they are known. And I think agape, that's the Greek word for it, is that charity. It's that love, the love of the gods, meaning you love the way they love. And so all these things we talk about in the church are kind of practicing. We're practicing being celestial. So the Lord puts us in families and he puts us in church and he says, go serve. And he says, go give a talk. And, you know, it's easy to sit in church and say, man, Bryce, your talk was kind of lame. It wasn't very polished. And then the next week the Lord's like, okay, Mike, you go talk. And now I see as Bryce saw. Why? Because I'm standing where he stood. What I see depends on where I sit. And Bryce, I know you've had this experience where you sit in certain places and you see different. And so that's where this ideal speech condition comes in, where somehow you've got to be able to communicate, okay, this is what I see. Now let me hear what you see. And ritually, I think that's where we're approaching God. Lord, help me see what I need to see, right? And And I love it. Yeah. And hence, we all come to God with the gifts that we have, and one of the most important is Charity, to love like God loves. It's the one that approaches him the most. If there's prophecies, prophecies will fail. Someday I won't need the gift of prophecy. Someday I won't need the gift of tongues. When we all speak the same language, I won't need the gift of tongues. But there will never come a day where we don't need the gift of charity, because that is to see and be what God is. So there's our list of rules that kind of govern the gifts of the Spirit. I would just strongly encourage you to what is your gift? Think about it. Read your patriarchal blessing. Ask other people. Notice what you do. The church needs your gift. It was given to us, not to you. It was given to us. So bless us. Bless our lives with the gift that you have. Now, before we leave 46, there's some real gems here, kind of within the list of the, of the gifts There's a couple gems. Mike wants to talk about one, and I want to talk about one. You know, there are those who have the gift to know that Jesus is the Christ, to say, I know. And there are those who criticize the church for that. So talk to us, Mike. What does that mean to you that they know Jesus is the Son of God? I had an interesting conversation with one of my sons about this, about ways of knowing And I think we live in a culture right now, especially if you live in an area where there's smartphones, we value knowledge. And it's so interesting because you'll be teaching. And if you remember this, Bryce, 25 years ago, you'd be teaching and you'd say, oh, I think such and such happened this year. And, you know, you might reference something historically and no one really cared if you got the date right. There was no way of checking. But now when you're talking, right, you'll say, oh, remember That happened this? on such and such a date, and someone will raise their hand and say, no, it didn't. It was two weeks later. And it took them how long to find it? Two seconds. Yeah. Literally in two seconds, we can, we can fact check the crud out of everybody. We're always fact checking. And I think we really value this. I personally think it's awesome. I love that we can look stuff up and, and know things historically and look at things. But then our critics say things like, well, how can you know? 
And so verse 13 and 14 are what I'm referring to right here. To some, it is given by the Holy Ghost to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he was crucified for the sins of the world. And to others, it is given to believe on their words, that they also might have eternal life if they continue faithful. And there's lots of ways we can look at those verses. But when it comes to the ways of knowing, I believe when Latter-day Saints say, I know that Jesus is the Christ, or probably the most famous one we say is, I know that the church is true. To me, I think what we're saying is, I've had a spiritual witness by the Holy Ghost that Jesus is the Christ, or I've had a spiritual witness by the Holy Ghost that the church has the keys. And I think sometimes our critics or those outside of our faith tradition can say things like, well, how do you know that? So what are the ways of knowing? So there's several of them. A couple of them are like the scientific method where it can be repeated and it can be tested. Another way of knowing is sensory perception. Can I see it? Can I smell it? Can I touch it? And both of those, the scientific method and sensory perception are really valuable. And they have a lot of pros, meaning, well, if I can test it and I can repeat it and I can yield results, that must be empirically proven. And if I can see it or another witness saw it, it must be an observable fact. It must be correct. But if you think about it, there are some things that are true that they might not be observable at all. And if you think about this, when it comes to the scientific method, not every experiment or every experimenter is always objective. And so there's strengths and there's weaknesses to these different ways of knowing And another famous one is the appeal to reason or logic. And the Greeks are kind of working with these ideas. And in the show notes, we kind of get into the weeds if you want to go down these roads. But just know that just because something seems logical doesn't always mean that it is. Maybe there's something that we don't see. And another really famous one when we're making arguments and we're trying to wrestle with knowing is the appeal to authority. Well, if it's in the Bible— Or, well, as we all know, studies show that doing this yields this result. And, you know, to me, the more I study all kinds of things, (laughs) like nutrition, when you get into these appeals to authority, if there's anything we've learned scientifically is authorities aren't always right. Maybe there's something we didn't know. I remember reading about that guy that thought about, okay, if I wash my hands really well before I help women give birth, Semmelweis was his name that hand washing will really help the infant mortality rate. And he started doing studies and all the authorities said, no, that's wrong. And he literally really struggled with this personally. And so the appeal to authority, although it's a great way of knowing, that's not always right. One of my favorite examples on the appeal to authority is Joseph Smith. He said, basically, not every one of these authorities can be right. Somebody has to be right. They can't all be right together. So this is a really good springboard if you're teaching Sunday school, whether it's adult or youth, and you can say, what are the ways of knowing for you? How do you know? And then you can go to the scriptures, because I really think sometimes in the scriptures, there's different levels of knowing. For example, the brother of Jared, where he sees and he knows, and he doesn't have faith anymore because he's perceived with his senses. And one commentator said this about that, for most it is given to believe also through the witness of the Holy Ghost, the testimonies of those who do know empirically. This ability to believe the testimony of others through the witness of the Spirit 
is no trivial gift. And we are promised eternal life if we continue faithful to the witness that confirms to us the testimony of others who have personally seen and experienced. To believe the testimony of Joseph Smith or of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon is a choice gift of the Spirit. In other words, there are those that empirically know spiritual things. They've seen Jesus or they've held his hands. Classic example, the people in 3 Nephi. Joseph Smith saw God. Joseph Smith introduces people at the school of the prophets to not only the son, but the father. There are multiple people that have empirical sensory perception knowledge. And for me, I haven't had that. But when I take the sacrament, I feel the spirit. Or when I read certain scriptures, it moves me. And for me, that's knowing the witness of the Holy Ghost. That's important. The way I read verse 13 is I think that's talking about to know by the Holy Ghost. I'm going to read verse 13 again. To some it is given by the Holy Ghost to know that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of God that was crucified for the sins of the world. And that's how I interpret verse 13. And I think that is going to be for the bulk of the church, that if we can learn the language of heaven, if we can feel the Spirit, if we can follow that light in our life, there will be a day when you will see the Savior and you will empirically know. But for now, I believe that when we say in the church, I know the church is true, I don't think we're saying that my bishop's perfect or that all the lesson manuals are perfect. There are people, they're doing their best. I have a testimony in Christ, and I know that the keys have been restored. And so in all this messiness, to me, I really think knowing and the ways of knowing is so important. And I think that is a tremendous gift, at least for me, because when I feel the Spirit— It's like I can put down a marker and I can say, this I know. And I had an experience where I read the first vision. I've had several, but this one really hit me and the spirit filled me. And I knew and I perceived that God, the father spoke to Joseph. And whenever I have doubts or concerns and I've had them, I go back to that day and I have a a big stake in the ground. And I'm like, I know that. And even talking about it now, I feel it. So to me, this is, that's really important. Yeah. And I love that the next one he mentions is, if you don't have the gift to know, there is another gift. It's kind of a temporary, I think, and that is the gift to believe on those who do know. So the Lord says to others, it is given to believe on their words. And I would hope that young children have that gift to believe on the testimony of their parents. And some people, that's all they really need to get started. I know that Mike knows, and to me that's good enough to get me going while I work on my own testimony. The only thing I'd like to throw in just as we close this whole Gifts of the Spirit is this incredible insight into judgment. In verse 15, the Lord mentions the gift of the differences of administration. I think what he's talking about is when to be merciful and when to be just. And bishops need that when they're dealing with excommunication and disfellowship. When to be merciful and when to be just. Parents certainly need that gift as they administer discipline to their children. When to be merciful and when to be just. But this last little bit in verse 15 is one of those scriptures that just changed my life. If you have the gift of differences of administration, you know that the Lord suits his mercies according to the conditions of the children of men. 
meaning that it is a gift of the Spirit to see beyond the behavior and know that the circumstances made a difference. I, I think we've all had dear ones take their lives through suicide. And I trust that the Lord will suit his mercies according to the conditions of the children of men. That he sees beyond the actions and what happened in that moment. That the gift of discernment or the gift of the differences of administrations is the ability to see the whole picture, the circumstance, and to suit our mercies according to those conditions. That, to me, that phrase has unlocked the character of God in such a profound way in my life, that God suits his mercies according to the conditions of the children of men. Wonderful little nugget, you know, found amongst this marvelous list of gifts of the Spirit. Bryce, I think that's also a good way to read church history. Yep. I think we can read the lives of these people and look at the entire story, and we're back to the sight of the heavens. God sees your story. And I pray that he doesn't judge you or me by our worst day. I just, I, pr- I pray for that. I think that God sees it all. And so I, Bryce, that's just beautiful. Verse 15 is powerful. One of the most eloquent verses in, of all scripture. So that kind of brings us to the end of section 46, the gifts of the spirit. Section 47 is asking John Whitmer to take Oliver Cowdery's place as church historian. John was a little reluctant to do so without kind of a, you know, hey, did the Lord say so? This is a big deal. And so Joseph asked, and the Lord gave section 47, basically saying, I want John Whitmer to be the church historian. Um, He's going to take Oliver's place. Now, we've talked a lot about John Whitmer. I'd refer you to some previous podcasts back when we did section 14, 15, and 16 about the Whitmer family. Mike, is there anything else you want to say about John Whitmer? You know, John certainly isn't David. They're different, but they kind of follow the same paths. John Whitmer is, to me, an illustration of what I call a figure and a fulfillment. John is an allegory of how he approached evidence, the restoration, and the miracles that he experienced. What I mean by that is John saw evidences, he saw miracles, but when the things that he saw contradicted the miracles that he'd seen, spiritually he struggled. And I think this is back to the ideas of of knowing. David saw an angel John saw the plates. I mean, this is one of the eight witnesses to the Book of Mormon, but they both fell away and they both don't come back. And so as one of the eight witnesses, John, like David, he fell away in 1838 during the Mormon War period. And what's interesting to me is he kept about 96 pages of church history. But what's fascinating to me is he kept writing after he fell away and then the church approached him and said, you know, we'd like to get these pages of history. And he says, well, I'll give them to you for a price. And it was really too much. But after he dies, the text falls into the hands of his descendants. And Andrew Jensen goes to Missouri. Andrew Jensen's kind of like the who's who in church history. If there's anything that's written or found, Andrew Jensen's like on the spot. And Andrew Jensen gets a copy of it. And he says, can I copy this? And they let him. We eventually purchase it. 
But when Andrew Jensen starts writing down things that were written in this book, and he's writing it down word for word, there's all this stuff towards the end that's scratched out. And it's just fascinating where you can kind of see the train get off the rails and you see John's struggles with how do I package believing in the gospel, believing in the Book of Mormon with his difficulties from 1838 and his rejection of Joseph Smith as a prophet. But you can see he has this hunger for truth and he has this hunger for wanting to keep the traditions of the faith without being in it. And so... The last three chapters, Andrew Jensen says, yeah, this isn't, this isn't good history. This is just John's musings, but I loved it. As a history geek, I read it. I'm like, this is great stuff. If you're one of those people that you're like, hey, Mike, I want to pull on that thread, just go to the show notes, which will take you to the Joseph Smith Papers, which is such a tremendous uh, website because in the Joseph Smith Papers, you can see it in their own handwriting. And they link it for you. And then if you're like, I can't read that, just to the right on your screen will be the transcript. So I would encourage you to read it. We're going to talk about the Colville branch in a minute. And John is a foil to that. John is one that when it gets really tough and when he sees the faults in the leaders, he's like, I'm out. And by the way, when the saints leave in far west, he collects that land at a really cheap price. And he has hundreds of acres of land when he dies. And I struggle with that. We lose the land and then he takes it. And I don't want to be, I don't want to judge him because I don't know totally where he's at, but I like this story as a foil. Hey, maybe sometimes seeing isn't always the best. In other words, having the Holy Ghost in your life, witnessing to you the truth, there's something to that. Yeah. Now let's get into section 48 because as you remember, The Lord has called the saints to Ohio, to Kirtland, Ohio. We have a large gathering of of members of the church in Ohio, mainly because of the conversion of Sidney Rigdon and his congregation. Um, So now we have a lot of people here, and the New York saints have been asked to come to Ohio. So let me remind you of section 42. The Lord says, go to the Ohio and I'll give you my law. And one of the main elements of that law was the law of consecration. That everything on this earth, everything that we have, everything that we own, all of our possessions, including my land, really does belong to the Lord. And it should be used for his purposes. So the Lord is now going to ride out of the gate, stretch the Kirtland saints, by calling them to obey this aspect of the law of consecration. Because there are some who have some considerable land holdings in Ohio. And here comes this huge branch of the church from New York, and they need places to live. And so the Lord says in section 48, look, those of you who have land, and it's more than you need, you need to provide land for the saints that are coming. Now, if you don't, then they'll have to buy their land. Let them buy their land around Kirtland. But the call upon the Kirtland saints to provide land, especially for the Colville branch who's coming and the New York saints that are coming, now provides the setting for some of the great stories of church history, as well as potentially some real problems, because as the value of that land increases, as demand goes up, some saints are going to fail that test. So yes. So when the saints in Ohio hear this, 
they prepare their hearts to receive those coming from the East. And there's a big group of saints called the Colville Saints, and they're led by a couple of people, Joseph Knight Sr. and Newell Knight. And the Colville branch consisted of several families, among them the Knights, Pecks, DeMills, Stringhams, Culvers, Slades, Badgers, Heinzes, and Carters. The entire branch was expected to gather in Ohio, and the poor were not supposed to be left behind. And so they set aside their former lives and their homes, and they were led by a 30-year-old man, and his name was Newell Knight. They make their journey in April of 1831, and they get to Ohio in May. And they were advised by the prophet to remain together and then go to a neighboring town called Thompson. And so in the show notes, we put a little map in there and you can kind of see it. It's situated near Lake Erie. It's not that far. Yeah, it's right there. And Lehman Copley is a man that has a lot of land there. And he lets the Colville Saints live on the land. In section 51, on May 20th, Joseph receives a revelation that the Colville saints are to practice the principles of consecration and stewardship. So sometimes the questions arise in a class, well, was this ever practiced? And the law of consecration was practiced. It was practiced anciently. We know that Enoch and his city lived it. We know that the saints in 3 Nephi lived it for a period of time. We know that some of the New Testament saints tried to live the law of consecration. And I would interject that, remember, we talked about living the inner law of consecration, which all of us must. Must live. We've covenanted to live the inner law of consecration, whether or not the outer law is called, we're called upon. So, yes, there have been a couple times where we've actually had to live the fullness of the outer law of consecration. And here's kind of the beginning of that. And, and we're going to see the difficulties. So they're going to go there. They're going to live on the land in May. Now, recently, Bishop Partridge was called to receive the properties of this people which have covenanted with me, the Lord says, and appoint unto them their portion according to their wants and needs. And so, although the revelation made it clear that Ohio would be their temporary gathering location, they were reminded that the hour and day is not given unto them for their anticipated move to the future city of Zion. The saints in Ohio are told, we're going to build a city in Zion But right now, they don't know where it is. But they were told that they are called to act. And so they do. They they roll up their sleeves. They get to work. Lehman Copley lets them live on the land. They draw up an agreement. And at this time, Lehman Copley is going to be called on a mission to his former congregation, the Shakers, which we will talk about in future podcasts. But just suffice it to say that his missionary experiences shake his faith. And when he comes back from that missionary experience in June, so just a short time later, he throws the Colville Saints off the land that they've just improved. And so now imagine you've given up your home, your job, your life back east. You're on this land. We're all going to live consecration. And the whole project doesn't even last a couple of months. And how that would just cause you to be in disarray. And so what happens? Well, they leave. They've improved the Copley land, and the Lord tells them to go to Missouri. And so they go on a thousand mile walk from Thompson, Ohio, 
all the way to Missouri, arriving in Caw Township on July 26, 1831, in a place called Jackson County, Missouri. And this is the first branch of the church that's going to settle and live in this place. It's going to be dedicated by Sidney Rigdon a few days later on August 2nd as the center place of Zion. And so Newell Knight's mom, Polly, she's 57 at the time. When they get there, she dies. She dies in Jackson County. And Joseph writes, he says, I attended the funeral of Sister Polly Knight. This is the first death in the church in this land. And I can say a worthy member sleeps in Jesus until the resurrection. And so just imagine you're Newell Knight, you're to lead these people, you get there and you start to establish this branch and you start to establish and cultivate the land. And we've talked about it before, but just to reiterate, they're not there long because by 1833, the Jackson County mobs are up and running and we're getting mobbed and we're getting kicked out of the county. And so we leave. Now we're going to talk a lot about the fact that we did not build up Zion then. There is a tremendous lesson for us today and all future generations about why they were not successful in building up Zion. But this is really just to focus on the character of the Knights and especially Lydia that's coming. Yeah. The Colville branch, they're in in this circumstance prior to the mobbing. In 1832, Joseph visits them and he seals the entire branch up unto eternal life. And this is in the historical records. And what does that mean? That idea of being sealed up into eternal life. We'll probably talk more about that as we start approaching and unpacking some of the things going on in the temple. But I think Joseph is seeing things and he's revealing some of these ideas to his closest, most faithful followers. The Colville saints are a celestial group of people. They want to live the law of consecration. They want to build Zion. They're all in, but they're surrounded with all this messiness. And some saints aren't all in. We'll see this when we get to more of the Missouri period. We're going to see some of these tensions. But with the Colville saints, I just see this celestial group. Now, in the midst of all this and the mobbings and the violence, Newell's wife, Sally, dies in September of 1834. Now... He's going to get remarried to a woman by the name of Lydia Goldwaite Bailey. And this woman, to me, embodies what the Colville Saints are. Lydia was born in 1812, and she had a first husband that was abusive to her. And she had two children that died. And over the course of time, by the way, when her children die, um, her husband abandons her. So she, uh, the image I want to paint in your mind of this woman that I just think is just tremendous is she's been abandoned. She's had children. She's alone. What is she to do? She meets the saints and she writes a lot of this in her journal. She writes that when she hears Joseph talk, she can see a light. She can see that he's a prophet. And over the course of time, she meets Newell Knight and they get married, and Joseph performs the wedding, and it's the first marriage that we know historically that Joseph Smith is performing, and so then she's going to bear him children. And so after the marriage in 1835, the branch settles in Caldwell County in 1836, and from there, the branch gets scattered. They go to different places, and so that's kind of the end of the body of the Colville branch as one cohesive group. Because the saints are, they're kicked out of Missouri. And so Lydia goes 
to Illinois. She has several children. When Joseph Smith is killed in 1844, she prepares to go west. And her and her husband, Newell, in 1847, they start the exodus west. And they're going towards Salt Lake. And in the winter of 47, Newell gets really sick. And he is about to die. And this is in the historical record. He tells her, he says, Lydia, it's necessary for me to go. Joseph wants me. Don't grieve too much for you will be protected. Now, while I like that message and I like that Newell is needed, Lydia needs him too. You see, she has several children between the ages of two and 13 and she's taking him West and now Newell is gone. He does pass away. Yeah. And she's just devastated. And there's one moment where she's, she's headed west and she cries out. She says, oh, Newell, why have you left me? And Newell appears to her from the world of spirits. And she writes this down. She writes down the message. Be calm. Let not sorrow overcome you. It was necessary that I should go. I was needed behind the veil to represent the true condition of this camp and people. You cannot fully comprehend it now. But the time will come when you will know why I left you and our little ones. Therefore, dry up your tears. Be patient. I will go before you and protect you in your journeying, and you and your little ones shall never perish for lack of food. Although the ravens of the valley should feed you and your little ones, you shall not perish for want of bread. After she had this experience, she writes that she looked up and she could see three ravens on the horizon. And so she might have wondered, okay, was I just seeing this? You know, what's going on? But when she sees the ravens after the vision, she's thinking, okay, there's something to this. Now, earlier in her life, Joseph Smith Sr. gives her a patriarchal blessing. And in the blessing, he tells her that her children will grow and that she'll help build the kingdom. And it's a beautiful blessing. And we put a lot of this in the show notes. We're not going to read the whole thing. But essentially, that blessing carries her through to Salt Lake, through those hard times. On October 3rd, 1850, more than four years after she leaves Nauvoo, she gets to Salt Lake. She lived there for a while. Then she went to Provo. She taught some school. And then she went to Southern Utah. And when the St. George Temple was completed in 1877... She became an ordinance worker, and she worked there basically until her death in 1884. And she writes about this, and so do her biographers, that she saw some of the hardest times in the church, but she felt like she had been compensated. In fact, she writes that her faith held her fast, and that she raised eight of her children to adulthood, and that from those eight children, one of her biographer writes that up to 80 descendants were alive before she dies in 1884. So that patriarchal blessing that she received when she was young, when she might have wondered, will I ever be a mother? It came to pass. Now there's lots of things that we're skipping. She has two miracles that happen with two children that almost die. And just go to the show notes and read those stories about her children. They're fascinating stories where she just holds on to her faith And she remembers that patriarchal blessing. And there's a time when one of her sons is about to die and even her neighbors say, just let him die. And she says, nope, I've been blessed. The Lord promised me. 
And so she goes out of her way to make those blessings happen and the child lives. And it's just beautiful. And you're seeing so many of the gifts of the spirit that we talked about embodied in Lydia Knight. You've got the gift of enduring to the end, the gift of patience and tribulation, the gift of giving God the glory, no matter what happens in our lives. And I just, I I wanted to end there with this beautiful story of Lydia Knight. Do you see how we're bookending the gifts of the Spirit and then watching them come to pass in the life of a wonderful person who lived her life in the service of everyone else? Every gift that Lydia Knight had was for the benefit of the people around her. And that's the embodiment of exactly what's going on here in church history. We've got consecration, we've got sacrifice, and you've got the gifts of the Spirit. And thank goodness that the Lord gave us such wonderful people like Lydia Knight. It's just wonderful. And yet, through all this faith, her life is riddled with trial and difficulty and she's just steady. And I love her as an embodiment of the Colville branch. It's the continuation of Newell living and breathing through her. And in the course of my teaching, I'll reference Lydia Knight, or I might tell a story about one of these miracles. And inevitably, there's always one person that will come up to me and say, I'm related to her. I'm a knight. And I just almost start crying because I'm like, what she did, and she wrote it down, it is carried over to so many people. And then I think, okay, what about you? Are you writing down your story? Because we're not here very long. But if we write down our story and if we talk to our families, there will be a time when you're not here and your grandchildren will, they'll pick up one of these stories and that will carry them through their tough times when all they see is ravens and they have no bread. And I just love that. And with that, we come to the end of our podcast. May you spend some time this week pondering the gifts of the Spirit that you have been given and how you can bless the church with those. Whose life can you improve by the gift that you have been given? Going through Come Follow Me this year and remembering the great lives of so many wonderful people and even the foils of people who walked away has been a reminder that we need each other. Somewhere hidden in all of us are the tools we all need to get back home. May we figure out how to help each other get back home is our prayer, and we'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.